episode 48 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast is with Andy Johnson, who is the fitness coach at Shrewsbury Town. Andy joined us to talk about his three biggest influences on his coaching practice. He also spoke about his last year in football, um, all the ups and downs he's been through, which has led him up to his current role. And then also he gave some great advice on proving the worth of sports science, which we spoke to a few guests about previously in previous podcasts, but it was great to get Andy's point of view on that as well. I'm going to keep this intro nice and short. We're going to get into the episode with Andy, but nice and quick. If you haven't left us a review, please head over to iTunes and do so. Enjoy the episode with Andy. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Andy Johnson, who is the fitness coach at Shrewsbury Town. Andy, thank you very, very much for coming on. How are we doing? Afternoon, Ben. How are you, mate? Um, thanks for having me, pal. Really glad to be on. And, uh, you know, this is my podcast debut. So be gentle with me, pal. We're going to throw you straight in at the deep end. Oh, God. <laughs> 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 do you want to kick us off I've just mentioned your current role um, but take us up to that point where you've been what you've been up to yeah cool so I've you know listened to a few of yours and heard people do these so mine's quite a I suppose there's probably a traditional method of getting in that you know goes internship full first full-time role and then you kind of gradually build it up so to throw it back even further and then build into that I, um, I basically did my A-levels Back end of doing my A-levels, I'll be honest, I was really tired of education. Um, got to the point with it where I just needed something different, I think. So I'd stepped out of it at the end of my A-levels and went and did um, went and did a job for a while. I was like remortgaging people's houses and I don't know how I did it for a year. So um, anyone in the Cumbria area that's had a dodgy remortgage, my apologies, that's probably my fault. Um, <laughs> but I didn't get into it at all. Uh, and very quickly I realised I wanted to be not in an office job sport was my passion and I wanted to go and uh, throw myself at it so ended up doing a local um, going to a local university to do a sports science course so I went to University of Cumbria which was St Martin's at the time um, and find, really found a passion for education just you know studying something you love every single day probably didn't know the full um, background of what I was going to end up studying when I first signed up to the course, but just loved it. Actually found areas hard to drop and really got on with my tutors. And that's probably how I got my first opportunity really, because I'm, you know, had a good relationship with um, Tim Barry. He educated Mark Howard, who was the fitness coach at Blackburn at the time and ended up getting an internship at Blackburn Rovers. Um, Alongside that, I was doing some S&C delivery at a private school called Sebba uh, School, which is local to me. The doctor at the school um, was also the doctor at Blackburn Rovers, so it all linked up really well. I'd travel in with him in the morning, and I'd go back, and I'd take the school S&C sessions in the afternoon. So did that for a year, and then at the end of the year, there was the opportunity to carry on at Blackburn. There was the opportunity to carry on at the school as well, to be fair, but I just thought my goal when I set out on on my path was professional sport. So I, I threw myself at that and went full-time at Blackburn. Um, got to the end of that year. Again, felt like it had gone pretty well. Uh, we had a really good group of lads there, to be, uh, two of which I went to uni with, and Shane Murphy who kind of became one of the little group on the way. And So we had Rob Hay with Shane and Chris Wilder um, under Mark's uh, stewardship, and Howard, he was a really good mentor just 
in terms of letting you get on with things like within probably six months of being at the club you could end up taking a rehab session with the club captain and he'd just let you he'd just throw you into scenarios that you weren't always comfortable with but it was just really good to be exposed to it um, so I got to the end of that year and if they'd have stayed in the Premier League it was meant to turn into a full-time paid role at that point I was on a really small amount uh, accommodation and half a Masters uh, was my remuneration at that point um, we ended up getting relegated and I said to Howard E, look, I really have appreciated the opportunity, but it's time for me to go and find my own way. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, but I can't keep relying on my parents. So luckily for me, the EPPP was going boom and I went down to Norwich to lead their um, academy delivery. Uh, so I did that for four years um, and it was a really good time in my career, really good to just be making decisions really. So I think it was something I reflect on. I think that was probably where I got my steepest development um, just because every day you're making decisions that other people are looking over and giving you feedback on. And and it just was really good to lead a program for a period of time. But that was always in the back of my mind that I wanted to get back to um, to senior football. And then Dave Carolan through a, a coaching colleague that um, I'd been working with uh, got in touch and basically said, look, there's potentially an opportunity coming up at Birmingham. Would you be interested in it? Um, and it would be kind of part keeping the development side of things going, working with the uh, professional under-23s, contracted players, and part travelling and working with the first team and everything like that. So jumped at the opportunity, came up to Birmingham. I did two years there. And I think in two years, I must have had six or seven managers. It was pretty high turnover stuff. Um in that period, I was an S&C coach, a sports scientist, an acting head of sports science, back down to being a sports scientist. So, you know, it, it was changing. You know, there'd always be something different going on. Um, and then I got the opportunity. They brought me up again when, when Gary and the team went to Stoke and said, would I be keen to come on board? And to be honest, I'd... Things had gone really well at Birmingham at that point. Sean Rush had come in with Gary Monk and it was going well. But I looked back at it and went, well, at what point in your career do you want to go and try and win something? And at that, I'd won, you know, been part of a team that won the Youth Cup at that point. Um, other than that, all my football had been competing to kind of stay in the league or mid-table stuff. So I looked at it and I went, well, when you look back, you want to say you, you know, you were part of a successful team. So... Stoke were favourites to win the championship, so I went up there and sadly it didn't work out as we planned. Um, there was a lot of things going on and there was a lot of um, you know things we tried to implement in a short period of time, but sadly it didn't work out. And then in January, we all got the sack together. I think seven of us left on the same day. Had a little bit of time out of football, did a little bit of travelling, uh, another qualification, things like that. And then this summer I got the phone call from Shrewsbury and um, I think within 10 minutes of speaking to the manager I was I was on board and he just seemed like you know a good person to work with which is always a really big qualifying thing for me that you know you work, you like the people that you work with and within sort of 10 minutes as I say he, he made me buy into what he was trying to achieve at Shrewsbury and I was all in really yeah. So I think it's it's really interesting because we were speaking just off air before we started recording about your last year 
And you've yeah. you've said about it a little bit there. But I don't know if people realise the sort of time scale on that. So do you want to break that down a little bit more? Because I think it's great for coaches to realise what can happen in the game and and how to react in these circumstances and take advantage of certain certain times. Yeah, definitely. And you know, we cycle. We talk about psychology of players, and you know, they're not getting enough support at times and things like that. But you know, things can change really quickly as a sports scientist and. Luckily, you know, good people around you and things like that and and you can get back in. Not everyone does, but yeah, my last year in sports science, so as I say, I went I joined Stoke having been asked to join by a management team, um, with you know, Dave who has been brilliant for my career, excellent, you know, he helped me out loads and he's given me great opportunities. So you go in there, it's not going as you want it to go, and then you end up out of football for six months. And then the next thing you do, end up doing is end up going from being a number two sports scientist to a to a number one and leading a department. So you've got to be prepared to you know get your head around different scenarios pretty quickly and adapt and think about how um, how you would act and how you would implement things in different roles. So I've had to go from thinking about how I can support Dave and um, be you know the best right hand man to him that I can be and and give him everything that he needs in terms of support and taking a weight off his mind knowing that he can kind of lead me to sessions that he knows are going to get done and you know the level of uh treatment the players are going to get and then go from that to right start again what do i need to do to get the next job what qualifications do i need to do how do i need to change my cv what networking opportunities do i need to make um to then right now i mean now i've got to deliver everything's on me so what what decisions do I now need to make going forwards to try and help the manager as much as possible and be his immediate protocol for everything sports science? So yeah, that really quick year. As I said, as you said, as you mentioned, we talked about a couple of topics for me to cover in this pod, and we've talked about kind of going from number two to number one, um, changing of environments and changing the training cultures, and potentially not being in football at times. So. And that was when it dawned upon me that I've had all those in one year. So, yeah, busy, busy period. And you've mentioned there already, like, I think you said the amount of managers at Birmingham alone. Was it six managers in the time you were there? Oh, I'd have to count them up. But, yeah, it would have been around that. So we went from um, someone who joined, it was Gary Rower. Then we had Zola, um, Harry Redknapp. Then Harry stayed on. Then Lee Carsley took it for a temporary period. Steve Cottrell then was the manager. And then we had Gary Monk at the end. So, yeah. Six or seven. Yeah. So with that, obviously, combined with all the other managers that you've worked under, either directly with first team or um, it might be academy managers, what what are some of the things that when you go into a role that you um, you want to know straight away from day one? What's going to affect your practice the most? I think the ones are probably, you know, a lot of those other roles that we're talking about, I was uh, number two, so that was probably left more to... Dave, Sean Rush, Nick Davis, those sorts of people that were above me. But in terms of speaking about Shrewsbury in particular, it was kind of um, what's working for you currently and what's not and kind of finding out what is in place, what are we doing well and what isn't there and what what needs improving quickly. I think one of the other things that I was keen to kind of work out with the manager at at Shrewsbury was – what what type of information do you want from us? So 
we're producing you a training report. What, what do you like about it? What do you not like about it? How do you want to see the data? Do you want to see it as numbers? Do you want to see it as visuals? Do you, does it, do you want it as a piece of paper? Do you, do you want it so that it's on Power BI on your iPad? Like, let's make it as easy for you to engage with it as possible because it has to work for you. Um, and I think that was kind of one of the first things we, we looked at changing. Um, they'd kind of had a dabble in Power BI but not really used it. Um, and I think the reports that were being generated were kind of from a couple of years before. So um, not sure they were really engaging the manager and, and that was something that we changed. But, yeah, it's kind of quickly making decisions about and, and also leaning on the staff that are in place already because they know a lot more about the current training culture and environment than, than you do. So it was about finding out what's good, what's in place that's good, right, keep that going. What's not in place that is part of my philosophy that we need to now put in. Um, and also kind of working out what the people around you, what their strengths and weaknesses are and, and which bits of the program they put in and which bits of the program have just kind of been there in a given. Um, because what, the last thing you want to do is a, as, a, as a new member of staff coming in is go in and go, right, this is my philosophy. That bit, that bit, that bit doesn't fit my philosophy. Well, two of the bits might have been the person that you've gone in to replace, but the other bit might be the guy that sat next to you. Um, so you kind of don't want to alienate them or, or make them feel like their opinion or what their philosophy points are aren't valid. Um, so it's about kind of rambling on a little bit, but finding the positives in the training culture, finding the negatives, and then also tying all of that into the manager's philosophy and how he wants the team to play and how he wants his staff to be around the players and things like that. But I think that's, you know, that's my most immediate uh, response from kind of the Shrewsbury role. But I think you can apply that wherever, you know, to any of those roles, really. I think that's vital. And I think what you said about asking the manager and getting their point of view, I think that's the most, that's the biggest takeaway there for me because you see so, I like, a lot of clubs gather so much information, don't they? And if we present it in the wrong way, it's completely pointless. And I spoke to a few people recently about how they think things are going to go forward. And a lot of people are saying the same in that we we collect data, we collect a lot of data, but we actually think that we're going to start collecting less and really focusing and, and uh, narrowing down what we want from it. And like you said, what the manager wants from it, because essentially if, if he looks at it, doesn't understand, doesn't understand it or doesn't want certain types of data, it's complete. Completely pointless, really, isn't it? Yeah, it just goes in his top drawer and it and never to be seen again, you know? It's one of those things. So I think a big thing for me was establishing how the manager wanted to see that. And rather than putting, giving him a piece of paper that is easy, easily put below three other reports that the physio's given him or another coach has given him on set pieces for the weekend, you know, it's on his iPad. If he wants to go and see it, there it is. He goes and engages with it. I sometimes get a text, what do you think of this? Or it's about trying to make it as engaging as possible and also solve a performance question for him. So not really putting too much depth. So when I went in, you know, the Power BI report, it, you know, good. And there was a lot of really good information in there, but it kind of turned into a bit of a monster because there were so many different reports. So if you were to go on there as a coach, you'd look at it and you'd go, oh my God, information overload. So it was about streamlining kind of what we were doing. And the other thing we had a lot of was, um, and it's kind of, as you say it there, about collecting a lot of data. We had, um, we had tools that predicted training loads. So you could kind of go into it and tap in 
tap in what um, what you're going to deliver in training for how long, and it would kind of give you a, a figure. And I think they're brilliant tools, and they're things we've definitely used in the past. Um, but when establishing a new training environment and train, training culture, as I keep touching on, I didn't want the tail to wag the dog. It was really important to me that that kind of grew uh, organically. It wasn't, we need to hit these numbers and you need to tell me how your drills work so that I can do a mathematical bit of work and find out where we're going to end up at one o'clock this afternoon. It was more, right, deliver what we've got to deliver, but let's try and integrate this, this, and this into it. And let's start to see what our, what our training philosophy is and let's build that rather than let the numbers dictate where we're going to go. Yeah, definitely. And uh, this was a bit of uh, feedback from our meeting recently with, uh, uh, in Manchester with Darren Burgess, but we were talking about how staff can, like, how they carry out their work um, in a slightly different way, not knowing that their job's guaranteed. So yeah. when you go into a new role, some people want to throw everything at it because they want to they want to prove their worth rather than actually thinking like what you're saying, taking a, a rational approach, speaking to the manager, tying down the real fundamentals of what you want to take out the program. They'll throw everything at it and try and impress rather than actually getting the results. Yeah. Well, I think I listened to you one with uh, Nick Grantham about nudging the culture, and I think he he said a lot of um, a lot of really um, basic things in there that basically, yeah you're constantly trying to improve and you're going to trade on your relationship a lot. And when you first go in, you haven't got any of that. So you have to put some credit in the bank before you make any withdrawals. So, um, yeah, it's, I think one thing you do have to set out when you first go in is the bet is, is the minimum level, the minimum standard, right? No one drops below this. These are, you have to do these, but as he said in, in the pod is that you're always nudging it to try and make it a little bit better. Uh, and that, that isn't going to happen overnight. And you are a bit of a work in progress at, at the start. No one's going to kind of go in, you know, not even the best practitioners in the world are going to go in and have the program that they want in place within the first week of it. So why chase it? Why not have a priority list in your mind of, right, that is, that is the key thing that I need to sort out in week one. By week three, I'm going to have this. So we we did that with the monitoring. It was quite um, – I just put a timeline up on the whiteboard of, right, this is priority number one. Do not move past this until until we have it nailed. Once we nail that, then we're going to go this, 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 and this. Um, and, you know, we've been in post 13 weeks now. I've got a really good um, data visualization specialist, I think, is his title, which is wow. Um, <laughs> but – Brilliant, brilliant by the club because um, they brought him in as an intern and um, because he's so good at what he does like company so he works for the National Grid now so he's got a really good job there but we've managed to retain him for 10 hours a week and he's been such a good help he's called George Bunce he's, he's amazing at what he does um, and yeah just kind of set out this timeline of yeah there's all these fanciful and wonderful things we could do um, but let's really nail the, the basics especially going in and knowing that I was going to kind of be a one-man band whereas at my previous roles you know Birmingham we had three or four full-time members of staff on the first team Stoke was the same um to just go so, so I kind of knew that we had to nail the fundamentals before we started getting carried away with ourselves 
Um, so it's just about putting putting it clear in your mind um, of what you want to nail down first, and that can be based on your philosophy. That can be based on what the needs of the training environment are. That can be based on how the manager perceives the things he needs in place. But as long as you've got a timeline in your head and you've got a priority list of what you want to achieve and in what time period, I think it really helps. Yeah, definitely. And one thing I wanted to ask you, Andy, with your experience, so thinking about the players you've worked with and thinking about the, the different ages of the players and the different experiences, what are some aspects you have to consider when you're dealing with the modern? Modern day player. So by the modern day player, I, I, I mean like the younger players coming through, the, the next generation of players. Yeah. I think, again, it's, it's similar to switching the manager on about the data with him. So you've got to find a way of engaging with them. So we put up data on the TVs. There's, a, there's an iPad next to the bikes in the gym where they can access the data. So they're, they're very data switched on at the minute, the young lads. But what you've also got to do is try and um, not not switch them off. They're not like the older players. They're not able to take the criticism as much. And I know people say that, and it's a bit of a cliche that it's kind of a bit of a throwaway comment, but I think you've got to really try and um, tap into them as individuals and forget they're almost players at times. Just talk to them as people. You've got to find a, a bit of common ground with every athlete you've worked with. And I think, who was it? It was Adam that was saying it about <laughs> players saying their favourite sports scientists are basically the ones that they like. Well, I've always gone from that point of view of you get more from the players when not when you're screaming and shouting at them. Yes, they might do it and pay a lip service, but believe me, they're not enjoying it when you're screaming and shouting at them. Try and educate them as to why you want them to do it and uh, and deal with them in a way where they, they feel like you know you are trying to do the best thing for them um, and trade on that relationship a little bit. So. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I think it's really important for coaches to to realise that with um, players that they work with, regardless of the level, um, just to build that relationship, isn't it, to get the most out of the practice? Yeah, 100%. And you, it's no different to what you do with coaches. And I think, you know, you've got 45, 50 guys all in one area, girls as well, some clubs, we don't have any at the minute. But yeah, 45, 50 people in one area and you know, try and develop a relationship with all of them because at some point you are in your working week, you are going to have a one-to-one conversation or a 20-to-one warm-up where you might have to speak to one player because their bottom lips out because of a decision that's been made or you might have to tone them down a little bit because they all met up for coffee yesterday and something happened that was funny and they're all... So it's just kind of building those relationships with every single player or every single member of staff so that you can maximise them and make them believe in you that you're trying to help them. Yeah, definitely. So another question for you, and I know this one might be a tough one because you might not be able to narrow it down to just three, but I wanted to ask you, what are three of the biggest, who are the three of the biggest influences on your coaching practice? Right, okay. So I think... One that came up at a really good time for me was uh, Mark Robson. He was a coach that I needed at that at that point in my career. So I had Mark at, um, at Norwich um, and Neil Adams as well. So the coaches that I had at at, um, at Norwich, I'd say, were, were massive for me. We had a good little group, um, Dimitri Halico uh, and, and so on. 
and those coaches really helped me um, understand what coaches wanted from sports science in different ways, really. So Neil, Neil challenged me in terms of he wasn't really sure on it, I don't think. So it took me a little while to affect him. Mark wanted everything he could get and he wanted it delivered in a way that was engaging and the lads enjoyed. So, so that was a challenge for me because early on in my career, I was a bit of a, I want things done right and I want it done at a level and I was a little bit highly strung about it. So he helped to, I think, calm me down a little bit and, and kind of give me a little bit of his energy, which was just always positive. Um, and then Dimitri, um, I put him in there as well. He was one that was, yes, he was an age group coach in that he had 20 players under his remit, but he always zoomed in and looked in at uh, kind of individual practices um, and individual uh, player pathways. He would talk about it all the time. Um, he's kind of, yes, that is the group program, but what are we doing for player X? What are we doing for player Y? Um, so he was excellent at that and that really kind of made me think about my practice in terms of not just putting things on that I think is almost having like an 80% program which everyone's on and then how can you make that 20% individual so that everyone's getting a little bit of what they need Um, so I'd say that little group of coaches really helped me at at that time in my career and made me kind of understand better uh, how I can help to affect players and how I can help to inform and um, help to plan training sessions and things like that. So I'd go with them from a coaching point of view. Sports science-wise, obviously, mentioned him already, uh, but Dave Carolan, um, in terms of his knowledge uh, in the time he's been in the game, uh, Sean Rush, the way he delivers to players, his relationship with them and uh, the way he talks to them, I think gets people bought in immediately. Um, one thing I have added by moving around and uh, with the instability of those manager changes is a lot of uh, new heads of department and coaches to work with. So I have had a lot of exposure to different people's ways of working. I think you've got to take a little bit from all of them. But yeah, I'd maybe say those two, probably from a sports science perspective and Howardy from, from way back when, because um, that was probably nine years ago now. And then, yeah, I think... Nick also said it about players really affecting your practice as well. So um, players like Cam McGeehan, again, when I was back at Norwich, he would always want more, always, always, always want more. And it was about, again, it just reframes it in your mind that a program that's global for everyone isn't good enough because, you know, Cam could tolerate a lot more load than the other one. So why am I limiting him by putting him on a group program? Um, just players that make you think he was definitely one of those so yeah they're they're the people I'd go with in terms of how they've um, affected the way I think when I'm planning and trying to uh, affect the people around me yeah awesome mate and you touched on it a little bit there working with players but another another recent discussion at our meet one of our meetings was um, optimising the individual in a team setting so you've touched on one player there but what are some things you take into consideration to optimise every single player go and get around the players go into the gym speak to them if you're not very good at speaking the only way to get better at it is by going and and speaking to them Um, I'm not saying you've got to be the best mate or anything like that by any means but yeah you've got to expose yourself to those um, to that to that um, stimulus you've got to go in there and have your shot or if you're a young practitioner and you don't really speak to the manager well 
in that 10 minutes at dinner where he's maybe sat on the table where you try and speak to the manager. I, I can't really, it's, it's really difficult because I feel for people that maybe don't um, possess those skills naturally. Um, but yeah, I think you've just got to expose yourself to it and you've got to every day try and have a conversation that you wouldn't normally have and go and find someone. If there's a player on the team that you don't particularly get on with or that puts you under pressure with his banter, go and speak to him. And I'm not saying go and speak to him and say, stop putting me under pressure with your banner. <laughs> <laughs> go and speak to him and like, not get in his face or anything like that, but just be around him and try and work out little ways in which you can deal with that situation better. Yeah. And you're not going to get them all, right? So, yeah, don't be disheartened if you have a conversation with him and it doesn't go well and he ends up taking the mick out of your new trim or whatever. Just go and... Get back up and go and do it again. <laughs> no, I think that, I think that's really good advice. Really good advice. Um, and I know you've got some some good thoughts on this next bit. So we were going to touch on, um, and it's an area I completely agree with. When we spoke about it before, is that a lot of coaches um, don't still don't understand the real effect that we can have as SNC coach, performance coaches, sports science, what, however you want to phrase it. What's, what are some things that you think that we can do better to educate the right people and show our worth? Yeah, I think I think one thing we went through a little phase of was shouting a lot about recovery. And that was kind of when I first got into sports science. It seemed like we talked about recovery a lot. And it's kind of gone full circle now. And I think it's a good, I think it's a good trip we've been on. Um, but I think... One thing that we need to do that will help coaches kind of believe in us a little bit more is shout equally about um, about our recovery protocols as well as, by the way, lads, it's a red day today. Go and work the boys, not as hard as you want. Go and work the boys within these restraints. It's almost like we put ceilings on the recovery days and then on the training days didn't really give them enough information to kind of show them how hard we can work them. Think. Be aware that every day has a physical stimulus that you can you can condition and you can uh, develop with the light. Now, some days that might be recovery. So we're in a two-game week at the minute. Thursday for whatever, 11, 12 of the lads will be, the major uh, physical outcome will be hopefully recovery. Um, but next week, when we come out of it, I know that on Tuesday, I'm going to go into the office and go, guys, we need to hit these markers of intensity. We need to hit these markers at high speed, this max speed, and, and almost kind of scream and shout about how hard I want the lads to be worked. Just because, yeah, as I say, I think we kind of build ourselves um, as we kind of took away a little bit of our credibility in terms of telling the coaches to work the lads hard. I think, as I say, it is coming back round. Um, but yeah, I think one thing that I, I think I read it on Twitter or I saw a coach, uh, a senior sports scientist talk about it was that he asked coaches that he'd worked with what their thoughts on sports science was. And this was kind of a senior guy talking to coaches that were working with junior sports scientists. And he just kind of said, well, I don't really understand what, they've, what they're changing that's making the program better. Or I don't really understand um, why we're doing this or... So I think there's still a lot of education to do um, and we need to be clever in how we do that and engaging with how we do that. 
Um, and we do need to start affecting the program in, in a, probably a more positive way than just um, them guys thinking we deal with recovery and, and really trying to progress what we're doing and be, uh, and be a bit more aggressive in it. I think one, I can't remember who it was on social media. I feel really bad that I'm not giving a little shout out on it, but um, it might come to me. But someone said on Twitter or Instagram or something, and I think this ties in really well with this subject, is if you removed yourself out of your role like tomorrow, how would that affect the programme? And I yeah. think that, that can then show our impact, can't it? Yeah, I think so. I think like, if, you, yeah, if you apply that to your training environment, like, what would it be losing? And if that isn't very much, then I think you've got to go back to basics and go, right, how, if I don't feel like me not being here would do much, then how can I now make it so that that is different? And how can I rebrand it and redevelop what we're doing within the constraints of the coaching philosophy and the medical team and everything like that and, and have an effect? So and I think you can go and ask your coach. I think like, people think you can't have that conversation with a coach. You can't be vulnerable in front of them. I think you can. I think you can go to the coach and go, I know all those coaches that I mentioned just before and the people that have affected my practice. If I went to any of them and went, what am I doing well and what am I not doing well? We could have an open and, com- uh, open and honest conversation and I'd come out of it knowing where they can see me having more value. So go and, go and speak to them. Yeah, they're not your sports science line manager, but believe me, they will have a massive effect on how successful you are because coach is king at the end of the day and you need to be building that relationship and developing how much you are affecting them or the players and so on. Yeah, no, that's class. Absolutely quality. Um, Andy, I don't want to keep you for too long on your day off. I know it's your, your day off today, so... Um, I really appreciate you coming on and having a chat through all that. I think there's some great information there for coaches. If anyone's got any questions that they want to reach out to you, where's the best place to do it? Yeah, so Twitter, probably the best one for me. Um, so I'm at Andy Johnson. Uh, Johnson is zeros instead of O's. So that's how there's just too many Andy Johnsons for me to get the handle. So yeah, that's probably <laughs> the best place to start. Um, Instagram one's the same, but I keep that on a bit more private. So yeah, Twitter. Yeah, class. Well, uh, thanks a lot for your time, mate. And I wish you all the best for the rest of the season. Top man, mate. Really appreciate it. So, yeah, all the, really think you're doing some good work with this, with the uh, with the meetups. I know they helped me when I was out of work. Uh, I came over to your Nottingham one, I think it was. Uh, and it was just good to you know, see other people in sports science again because it had probably been about a month or six weeks since we, uh, since we left the club and just share some ideas. So, yeah, really good work, mate, and glad to be on the podcast. Cheers, pal. Thanks, Andy. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you to Andy for giving up his time and coming on the podcast. It was great to speak to him. You can go and follow Andy on Twitter. He's at Andy Johnson, and the zero, uh, sorry, the O's in his name are zeros um, in his Twitter handle. The three biggest takeaways for me, there was quite a few, but I had to try and narrow it down to three. And these were the three that stood out uh, for me in this episode, were where he spoke about setting minimum standards for players. Um, so the minimum things you want doing, and then that allows you then to add things on top, but as long as those minimum standards are hit. 
He also spoke about young players and the modern day player and a lot of the modern day players liking data because they spend time on devices like phones and iPads. So using that to your advantage. And then he also spoke about, which I really liked, he spoke about the 80% program. So where he spoke about individualization within a team setting, he spoke about having an 80% program that allows for 20% of adaption or change. That's the point where you can individualize the program. And I thought that was really fascinating and a really good way of looking at it. So I hope you enjoyed the episode with Andy. Like I mentioned at the start of the episode, please, if you haven't done so already, head over to iTunes, leave us a review, and we'll speak to you again next week.